preach word this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 29. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 29. And the word of God reads as follows. And when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over the people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed my judges over people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I'm, who I'm away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made to reign forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And who is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord God, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, as do and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. 
And now, O oh Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O oh Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of the servant be blessed forever. Amen. Indeed, I am often amazed at how there is this tendency in us to to want to do for those who do for us. And I'm sure that most of us could testify to the same thing. We have the tendency to, to feel almost obligated to do for those who do for us. Somebody gets us a Christmas gift and immediately we're like, oh my, I have to scramble and find a Christmas gift for them. Somebody invites us out to lunch and as soon as it's over, we're feeling the obligation and even the pressure to return the favor because the tendency for us as human beings, fallen human beings, is to want to do for those who do for us. God is not like that, however. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 14 where he demonstrates this, that God does not do for us in order for us to do for him. In fact, God does for those who can't do for him. And that is the very purpose of God doing for his people is so they would be reminded that it is not God who needs us, but it is us who need God. This is a message that God gave to David here in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. It's a lesson that our Lord taught David and taught David in a glorious way and consequently and subsequently is going to teach us this morning. As our text begins, you see that David has looked over all that God has given to him, all that God has done for him, and there is a sense of appreciation. There is a rejoicing in all that God has done. And, and, And yet, he looks around and he sees that there is peace in Israel for the first time. All the enemies have been done away with. He looks around and he sees the house in which he is dwelling in. And it is a glorious house. It is a wonderful palace. And then he looks where God dwells. He had brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem, you remember. And he looks and he sees that the tabernacle of God dwells in a tent. David is living large and the tabernacle of God is dwelling in rags. So David has a wonderful idea, he believes. He's going to build God a house. He thought it was a good idea. He told it to his friend and prophet Nathan and Nathan thought it was a good idea. It might have been a good idea, but apparently it wasn't a God idea. 
God tells Nathan to tell David, not so fast. For God doesn't need anything. Don't get it twisted to think that God is standing in need of anything. Don't misunderstand that God is in in hock for anything with anyone. Romans chapter 11 and verse 35 reminds us that he is a glorious God. That no one has given to God and therefore God is obligated to give back. God is not in need of anything. And so he puts a halt to David's plans. And he does so by revealing to David and thus to us one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. As we see that not only is God glorious in that he stands in need of nothing, but God's delight, God delights to give his people everything. And rather than us thinking that we must give to God, God is delighted when his people humbly receive all that he has in store for them. So he reveals these words that mark out the history of redemption and and gives to David and thus to all of his people one of the most precious and glorious promise ever recorded in the scriptures. God enters into a covenant with David. God enters into a covenant with David much in the same way as he has before entered into covenant with his chosen man, his chosen people. God had previously entered in the covenant with Adam. He had entered in the covenant with Noah. He had entered in the covenant with Abraham and even Moses. And now God is going to enter into covenant with David. And as the previous covenants tell us and show us These, this covenant is filled with glorious and precious promises. In examining this Davidic covenant, as it is called, I want us to see some things that reveal to us who God is. And the nature of God dealing with his people. And reminding us of all that we have in God. Because of who God is. And it is not us who make God who God is. But it's God who makes us what we are. This is what God tells David he's going to do. David, you're not going to make me glorious. I'm going to make you In this covenant, we'll see three things that mark out all of God's covenant 
And it's glorious, it's wonderful as we understand more about how God relates to his people, to David, and thus to us. And the first thing we'll see is that God initiates the covenant. That God, And the second thing we'll see is that God sustains the covenant. And then the last thing we'll see is that God completes the covenant. God initiates the covenant. God sustains the covenant. And God completes the covenant. Chapter 7 is referred to as the Davidic covenant. Because it is the promise and the the covenant and the oath that God enters into with David and the nation of Israel. And in fact, in chapter 7 here in 2 Samuel, we really get a gist of what's it all about. Why did God call David to be king? Why has God lifted up this shepherd boy and set him over his people? Why has God established his faithfulness to Israel and indeed to this young king? Chapter 7 of 2 Samuel answers these questions. But before we understand the Davidic covenant, we probably ought to understand exactly what is a covenant. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant, biblically speaking, is a bond. It's a bond based in a solemn promise and an oath of faithful, unwavering commitment to bring those promises to pass. There are covenants of many stripes. There are covenants between people. And we understand this in our day. We refer to to this kind of covenant oftentimes as marriages. A covenant between one person and another. But they're not only covenants between the people, they are covenants between nations. As nations enter into treaties and agree to cooperate and promise to, to cooperate with each other based on mutually agreed upon benefits for those nations. But most important of all, are the covenants that God enters into with his people. God is a covenant God. When God enters into covenant, these are sovereign bonds, sovereignly administered by God. And you see this over and over again. He made a covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham and and Moses and now with David. But ultimately, all of these promises, as we shall see, all of these covenants find their summation and fulfillment in the covenant of all covenants. That is the new covenant, the final covenant of which we, if we are in Christ, according to and by his blood, have entered into by the grace of God. But what is the Davidic covenant? Well, the Davidic covenant in particular is God making a covenant with David in which he would establish his kingly rule over his people. It is a royal covenant. In Moses, we see that God was a prophet to his people, bringing the law and the commands. But in David, we see that God is king. 
He enters into a royal covenant in that he is king over his people, bringing his sovereign rule to bear over the nation. And this is why David is enthroned in Jerusalem. David is enthroned in his house. David is enthroned in Jerusalem because God has established David as king over his people. And David looks out and he knows, remember, that the Ark of the Covenant is not in Jerusalem. So therefore, he goes and gets the Ark and he brings the Ark into Jerusalem because David wants God enthroned in his house as well. But David is misunderstanding one thing. But David wants a good thing. He wants God enthroned in Jerusalem. But God wants a greater thing. But David's eye is on the kingdom of Israel. But God's eye is on the kingdom of God. David wants to build God a house. David's living in a mansion like a king should. He's living in a palace like a king should. David wants God enthroned in Jerusalem, so he wants wants God to live like a king should. He wants to build God a house. This is noble. I, I, I hope you will agree. Why should you live in luxury when the things of God go neglected? Right? Amen. David, heart is after God. This is a good thing. And yet God reminds David, before he even engages with David on this issue, he wants to remind David of one important truth that David seems to have forgotten. And that is that God does not need a house. That God does not need a house. Why? Because God is enthroned in the heavens. He already has a throne. And over and over again, the Bible reminds us that God is enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 2 and 4 reminds us that he is enthroned in the heavens, as well as Psalm 123 and verse 1. Isaiah 66 and verse 1 actually puts it very bluntly. It says, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He already has a throne. He doesn't need a throne in the earth, David, because the earth is actually just a footstool for him. Also, the Bible also reminds us that not only does God not need a house, but God has never dwelled in a house. He's never dwelt in a house, David. And we understand this too in Acts chapter 7 and verse 48. The Bible tells us that our God does not dwell in houses made by hands. In Acts 17 and 24, it says that our God does not live in temples made by man. And this is a truth that God impresses upon David, reminding David that God dwelt in a tent, David, because God delighted to dwell in that tent. 
Why? Because the delight of God is to dwell wherever his people dwell. If his people are dwelling in the tent, then God is going to dwell in the tent. If his people are dwelling in cathedrals, then God is going to dwell in cathedrals. Whether it's mountains or valleys or deserts or oceans, boardrooms or sick rooms, it doesn't matter. God dwells in the midst of his people. Wherever his people are, that's where God delights to dwell. Wherever God's people are, there is God in the midst. With that in mind, he reminds David, he enters into this covenant with me. And God initiates the covenant. Now that he set the record straight, now God, establishes the covenant. It is not David who will build a house for God. God says that it is God who will build a house for David. God is going to build this house because it is God who sets the tone and the terms of the covenant. It is God who sets the conditions and the length of the covenant. It is God who determines the blessings and the boundaries of the covenant. He initiates it. You see that in verse 11, where he says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. It's not you, David, who's going to make the Lord a house per se, but it is God who's going to make you a house. Why? Because God is not the one in need, David. You are. And yet David doesn't seem to know this until God reveals it to him. And this, beloved, is the mercy and the grace of God. What God does in initiating the covenant is reveal our need of him. And you don't know that you need God until God reveals to you that you need him. Once he reveals your need of him, then your desire above all things is to have that need met. But it is first God who reveals that need. God always initiates covenant. It is God who created Adam. It is God who moved upon Noah. It is God who came to Abraham. It is God who called Moses. And it's God who reveals himself to David. Because God is always the initiator. As always the initiator because it is we who need him. He doesn't need us. 
This is why Jesus, in speaking to his disciples in John 15 and 16, said these words, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Why? Because it is not so much of you and I inviting Jesus into our hearts as much as it is Jesus coming and opening our eyes to the kingdom and welcoming us in. The hymn writer, Isaac Watts, who put it this way, says, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perish in our sin. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, reminds us from the very beginning, if you seek God, it is only because God has sought you. This is God initiating this covenant with David. I'm going to build you a house. But he doesn't just initiate this covenant. It is God who will sustain the covenant. He will sustain the covenant. But the problem with God entering into covenant with us and and with David and with anyone is that we are by nature covenant breakers. We are by nature covenant breakers. I remember my father telling me one time, he said, son, promises are made to be broken. Not with God, they're not. Not with God. God is the original and the only true promise keeper. Neither David's sin or God's chastisement will nullify the promises. For God is going to enter into covenant with David. He initiates this covenant, but then in initiating this covenant, God says that I will sustain the covenant. Why? Because you, David, are going to mess up. Your son is going to mess up. The nation of Israel is going to mess up. And if I leave, The the sustaining and the completion of this covenant to you, this covenant doesn't have a chance. So he even promises him. In verse 14, speaking of Solomon and his son, he says, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. All of the ups and all of the downs of David and David's family, the one constant reality would be the steadfast love of God. The guaranteed covenant, beloved. The reason is guaranteed. It's guaranteed because 
the covenant faithfulness of God, steadfast love of God, the loving kindness of God, the covenant mercy of God. If you know the history of David, even going forward from this time forward, you will understand that David's house was often in chaos, often in chaos. David failed and God chastised him. His son Solomon failed and God chastised him. The kings after Solomon failed. The nation failed. And God chastised them, sending them into captivity under the weight of a foreign nation. And yet through it all, there was one constant. And that was the mercy and the faithfulness and the goodness of God. God never forsook his promises. You do understand that discipline does not mean discard. That the chastisement of God does not mean the abandonment of God. In fact, the very opposite is true in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. For the Bible says that God chastens, he chastises those whom he loves, who he regards as his Children. You know, my children, particularly the older ones, they they often joke now about the times that they received punishment in the past. And they joke about it now, but they, they weren't joking about it then. But they often joke about it now. They often, they often talk about it with smiles on their faith and, and face and talk about who received the worst punishment and how they were feeling when others were getting punished. The reason they can talk about it now is because they've come to understand something that with every chastisement there was mercy. That there was faithfulness, that there was love in the punishments, that there was grace in the timeouts and the other things. So it is with the people of God. There's mercy in the chastisement. There's grace in the discipline. Because through it all, he says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. That was with Christ. You realize that Christ took upon himself the chastisement of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Who chastened Christ? It was God. Don't think for a moment that it was the whips of the Roman soldiers 
that really pained Jesus. The real chastening, the real discipline came from the Father. As he took upon himself the stripes that would do us for our sin. God chastised him because of us. And that is why now we have peace with God. This is the promise that God made to David. David, I'm going to sustain this covenant even through the chastisement because my steadfast love will not depart. He doesn't just promise to, he doesn't just initiate the covenant and promise to sustain the covenant, but he also promises to bring the covenant to completion. You understand that the ends for which all things exist, even the covenant with David, is the glory of God. God is going to get her done. And this is what he promises to David. You will not be dependent on David for this covenant to be brought to completion. Notice what he says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God tells David that David, you will not build a house for God. But God is going to build a house for David, but David won't be the one to reign over this house. It will be David's son. Now, Initially, it's going to be Solomon. Solomon is going to be the one who builds the house for the place that's going to be ultimately built will be called Solomon's temple. And yet it is in Solomon that God ultimately has in mind here. Ultimately, he has in mind his son, Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, Again, in verse 31, when the angel comes to Mary and tells Mary that she's going to conceive, the angel says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. There is God. 
fulfilling the promise that he made to David and of this kingdom, there shall be no end. And yet, beloved, here is the grand, unimaginable glory of this passage. It is that not only is it pointing to Solomon and not only is it pointing to Christ, beloved, it is pointing to you and it is pointing to me. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, if we are in Christ, then we are sons and daughters of God. And if we are sons and daughters of God, and the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, that if we endure, we shall reign with Christ. In fact, Jesus himself says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, he promises to all those who overcome that we shall sit on his throne with him even as he has sat down on his throne with the Father. This is the glorious end of a covenant. God made David. It is not the throne, the enthronement of David. It is not the enthronement of Solomon, but the enthronement of Christ. And not just over Israel, but over all the nations. The ultimate consummation of it all is that we reign and we rule with him. But you do understand, there, there's no temple in Israel today. There's no temple in Israel. We are the people of God. And Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 tells us that we are the house of God. That Christ is the son of God over God's house and we are that house. The church is us. Recipients of this glorious promise that God gave to David. He shall establish and throne over his kingdom his sons and daughters. They shall be kings and queens. Someone has said lately, we live as kings and queens. If that's true, it's only because of Jesus. It's only because of the promises of God which find their completion and consummation in Christ Jesus. And all of us in Christ, Promise to reign and to rule with him. Kings and queens, according to the promise that God made to David. 
What is David's response to all this? What is his response? It's a wonderful response, if you ask me, for after hearing all that the Lord is going to do from him. The Bible says in verse 18 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, you see what David did? He went in and sat down before the Lord. He sat down and he quieted himself. He got two things. First thing that happened, he got perspective. He got perspective. He got perspective when he understood that God's agenda is always preferable to mine, no matter how noble and good I think my agenda is. God's agenda is always preferable. But notice what he says in verse, he asks the question in verse 18, who am I? Who am I? When you get quiet before the Lord, the first thing you realize is this, that he is God and I am not. And when you come to realize, when you come to have that knowledge, then all other knowledge becomes just a footnote. There is a God and he is God. And I am not. When you realize that, everything else falls into place. Everything else falls into place. David himself said in Psalm 8 and verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Who am I that you would condescend to speak to me these glorious and wonderful promises? Who am I? Undeserving, unworthy, finite. I shouldn't even be the king. I don't have royal blood flowing through my veins. I'm a shepherd boy. I was shepherd born and shepherd bred. And I should have been shepherd dead. Except. You came and you were mindful of me because God takes a shepherd and makes him a king. God comes and takes sinners and makes them saints. And when you understand that, the first thing, the first question you should always ask is, who am I? Who am I? Well, David don't just say, who am I? And then he says, what do I know? In verse 21, he says, says, what do I know? And the answer is, only thing I know is what you have delighted to reveal to your servant. That's all I know. I thought I knew you needed a house. I didn't know that. I thought I already had one. I didn't know that. So what do I know? When you come to realize that there is a God and you are not him, then you realize that you are nothing except what he has made you, that you know nothing except what he has revealed to you. And that's why you say like David says, 
verse 22. You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you. In other words, God, I understand now. It is not you who needs me, but I need you. You're not a God created by human hands. You're not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give by your plans. That's just the way it is. You are God and you are God alone. You have perspective. What happens when you get quiet before the Lord? You get a little perspective. You realize you don't know what you think you know. And you're really not who you think you are. He not only got perspective, then he took courage. See that in verse 27. He found courage to pray, to pray the prayer. You know what? God told David that David would not be the one to build the house. It would be Solomon. You're not going to build it, David. Yeah, yeah, I would allow there to be a house built in which my people can come there and worship me. But David, you won't be the one to build. Solomon's going to build. And notice, after getting perspective, David took courage to pray with this knowledge. He didn't get angry. Why does Solomon get to build? It's my idea. Why does Solomon going to get the credit for this? This is in my heart. He doesn't get angry. He takes courage to pray because he found confidence in the promises of God, and he trusted in God's word. The temple would have Solomon's name on it and not David. But you know what? David doesn't mind because the credit may go to Solomon, but the glory is going to go to God. The eternal glory is going to go to God. And when you get perspective, when you sit down and quiet yourself and get perspective, when you hear God and you understand what God is doing, then it doesn't matter who gets the credit. As long as God gets the glory. That is David came to. Doesn't matter. It's all David cared about at this point. It's all he cared about. It's all he desired. In fact, beloved, it's all God desires from us. That we quiet ourselves and realize. And not only does he initiate relationship with you, not only does he sustain that relationship with you, but he's going to bring that relationship to completion. He's the one who's going to get the glory.
He's the one who's going to get the praise for it. I can hear David almost like, a, it's almost probably a little sigh of relief anyway. You know? Kind of a sigh of relief. You mean, you mean it's not in my hands? That's how you and I should feel. Aren't you glad that the Lord didn't leave your salvation in my hands? Or even worse than yours. <laughs> he didn't do it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 reminds us that he who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion. He came to you. He sought you. He bought you. Then he established you in his grace and sustains you every moment of every day. And he promises to bring all that he is doing in your life to completion so that when you stand completed before the throne of Christ, he will get all the glory, all the praise. You won't even be up there giving me credit for a sermon you heard. It'll be all Christ. Y'all, God. Because it's his covenant. It's his promises. His oath. And he is the first and the last and the original and the only true promise keeper and he has given you glorious and precious promises and he is faithful to get her done let's pray